from Doksu Village on Jeju Island. This is the Korea File, a weekly podcast about music, culture, and society from all around the peninsula. I'm Andre Goulet. This episode's produced in collaboration with the Jeju Weekly. On this episode, UCLA Asian Languages and Cultures graduate student and author of the Jeju Palimpsest blog, Reexamining the History of Jeju Island, Tommy Tran. <laughs> UCLA Asian Languages and Cultures graduate student. Yeah. Uh, and you are back in Jeju for like the fifth time? Yes. Is it really the fifth time? Oh, uh, yes. Okay. So tell me a little bit about your Korean connection. What was your first uh, exposure to Korea? What year and what were you doing? 2006, and I was on the EPIC program, English program in Korea. Before that, I knew nothing about Korea except kimchi. Which, like most of us in North America. <laughs> what, what motivated you to come and join the EPIC program in the first place? It was totally random, actually. I, I actually was fresh out of college, and I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. So, so I applied to whatever English teaching program I could think of in Asia. And the first two I applied to were, were Taiwan and Korea. And it just so happened that the Korean government responded first, so I just went with Korea. Okay, how long were you with EPIC? For two years. And upon finishing your second contract... Uh, you returned to the States? Yeah. Okay. I returned to the States and I did a master's program. So what was your master's program in? East Asian Studies. Aha, uh-huh. so you yeah. hadn't quite focused on Korea yet. Actually, I started, I started to move that direction that time. Originally, I had, a, I had an area studies degree, mostly f- concentrating on, on China and Japan. So I never had thought of focusing on Korea. But, but after I came back from doing two years here, I made a jump from from doing Japanese and Chinese studies to Korean studies. Okay. What was... Okay, upon finishing the master's, is that when you came back for a second time? Oh, yes. That was for the talk program. Uh The teach and learn in Korea program. So you returned with the second major program for public school stuff, talk. Yes. How long did you do talk? One year. On Jeju? On Jeju. Was Epic also on Jeju? Epic was also on Jeju. Uh Okay, so a year of the talk program. You finished that, you went back home again, Yeah. began your graduate studies. Yes. Okay. Uh, and you returned here with, um, uh, like, can you tell me specifically what is the scholarship or the program or towards what end you're here studying? Well, my, dis- my dissertation focus is on, is on the modernization of Jeju City. Originally, I was going to focus on the entirety of Jeju Island, but that, my project was already broad enough that I've branch in so many areas I need to start concentrating on things okay yeah. so, so Dejan and Masilpo is sort of like an it's aside kind of, yeah it's academic. an aside okay well it's, it's an important background because every, it's well Jeju is an island so everything is is connected in one way or another there's no escaping it so I have to have that background information Tommy what is the opposite of mindfulness the opposite of mindfulness it's kind of like me in the last few weeks of being everywhere at the same time. So busyness. Busyness. Okay. Busyness without any concentration, without any, without any clear purpose. Okay. What's the opposite of consumerism? The opposite of consumerism? Well, pretty much being a bohemian. <laughs> okay. Getting by on little. Yeah, getting by on a little, not really attaching yourself to to, to material things. What's the opposite of development? Development, preservation, preservation of what's in, of what's important to you, or what you think is important, and what enriches your life spiritually and mentally. 
What's the opposite of creative destruction? The opposite of creative destruction? Well, that would be the Korean form of development. <laughs> Let's move to that. So one of the things you talk about is analyzing the relationship between tourism development and nostalgia. What does that mean? Well, well, I'm talking about the paradoxical ways in which in which Korea tries to present itself to the world. On the one way, they try to they try to present this image of of a pure Korean nation with an unbroken lineage going back five thousand years. So they present this monolithic idea of Korean culture, and they try to get everyone on board with a sense of Korean togetherness that this is Korean, that is Korean. We're all Koreans, so, so we're all mixed. We're talking about Hangul, we're talking Hangul, we're talking about uh, Samul Nori, yeah. singing, dancing. Well, pretty much the most stereotypically typical things okay. presented as Korean. Are these authentic heritage? They are authentic heritage to a certain extent. To the extent that they're also kind of reinvented in ways to support the, the idea of a nation state. Whereas a lot of these things were made in a time when people had no conception of what a nation was. You were a subject of the, of the monarch and but your primary loyalties were to your village, to your family, and people didn't know what a nation was. You paid your taxes to your king, you, you obeyed him or else he'd kill you. So that was it. So this sense of nostalgia is what? The sense of nostalgia is the sense that, that these things are, the sense of a Korean nation is eternal, that we've always been this way and we're continuing a great grand legacy of a single nation, when in most cases that wasn't really true. How does this contrast with tourism development on Jeju? Tourism development on Jeju, there's really no clear image of what Jeju is trying to present itself as. It's, it's um, on the one hand, it's building golf courses everywhere, of course, much to the detriment of its own environment, which it promotes as being what's unique about Jeju. Yet at the same time, the more they try to present, the more Jeju elites try to present Jeju as Jeju, there's really no clear definition of what that actually means. It's sort of like their slogan or their, their catchphrase back in the first time I was here in 2007. <coughs> their catchphrase was only Jeju. Well, only Jeju what? It doesn't mean anything. This is the same era as the Korea sparkling yes. tourism uh, motto. Yes. They're trying to present an Im a sort of monolithic image, but what is that monolithic image? Like even like even if there are so many things wrong with a monolithic image, you should at least create something that's clear and understandable. Otherwise, it's just everywhere and just one big blur. So it's a, it's a time of, of latching on desperately, maybe, to notions of identity that may or may not be accurate. Oh, yes. You write that, uh, well, you've written about what happens when a former periphery mm -hmm. becomes a premier testing ground for development. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the front lines of Jeju today. Oh, yes. Uh, so it was a former periphery in, in what way? A periphery that Jeju was kind of a penal colony. Well, it was a penal colony. Basically, the people that the, the Korean government didn't like got sent here. More like political prisoners than actual criminals? Yeah, political prisoners. Mostly people that fell out of favor with uh, whatever ruling faction at the court. So this was, this was seen as the most despised place uh, during dynastic times. And to a certain extent, that, that view of Jeju as a despised place lived on even until modern times. Right. People didn't want to go to Jeju. Right, so it was, a, it was a periphery, and then in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, it was a honeymoon destination. Yeah. And today, it's something else, and it's a, a, a ground zero for massive uh, development on yes. an unprecedented scale in Korea. Yeah. Maybe. 
and it still functions as a colony of of Korea since since uh, the way the way Korean development works is that even though autonomy to certain to a certain extent was granted by the Korean government in 1995 towards all provinces in Korea and even with the 2006 uh, so-called Jeju special law making Jeju the so-called um, special self-governing right. province all that actually doesn't really mean anything in actuality there are local legislatures there are there is a governor who has some power in in deciding things but this funding from the funding to run the province actually still is decided by the government in Seoul. So in order for Jeju to get more money, they have to think of absurd, one absurd plan after another in order to keep that money. So the Jeju governor cannot exactly have an, like an antagonistic relationship with the Seoul government, or else the Jeju could lose funding. So in fact, what's driving the development is primarily coming from the, the source in, in Seoul? And it's partly, partly, well, very heavily Seoul, and also, and also due to corruption in Jeju itself. Jeju being an island where everybody knows each other, so nepotism is a frequent problem here. You talk about the contradicting programs of urban expansion and cultural and ecological preservation. Mm -hmm. I could, I can imagine how those would would uh, not complement each other. Uh, yeah. But what have you seen? The, well, they're they're both they're both goals that the Jeju government and the Jeju elites try to go for, but they're in total opposition to each other, especially in the way that they carry it out. There's, they, they make these talks about, um, about sustainable development and green development and green Jeju and all sorts of things. But the way these things are going about is that what they mean by sustainable, sustainable development is basically destroying an entire forest and using green materials to build a building. So that's their form of ecological preservation and sustainable development. So it's pretty antithetical in practice already. Mm -hmm. I mean, we see this across Korea a lot. Oh, but yes. On Jeju, the development's happening full speed ahead. Oh, yes. Does it seem completely out of control? Does it seem like planned development to you? No, no. I've, I've seen the development plans myself at, at the Jeju government's archives and... They were absolutely crazy, and they're getting more crazy every year. So, there is there is a planned madness, that's for sure. Okay. Is there anywhere that there's like a counterbalance to slow down uh, unhelpful development? No, certainly. We're we're actually beginning to see to see a lot of pushback from Jeju citizens against uh, against this kind of development. Part of the reason that the Dream Tower project in the middle of um, Jeju City. Have you heard of the Dream Tower, by the way? So the Dream Tower is going to be a gigantic uh, twin tower right next to E-Mart. That's what that big construction lot is for. So it'll be this towering 38-story building right next to E-Mart in the most densest populated and most traffic-congested area of Jeju City. So thanks to citizen opposition, that project has been stalled for now. There's always a question of when it's going to start up again, but for now that's been halted thanks to pushback from the Jeju citizenry. Now, aside from uh, physical development and the threat that it uh, poses to ecological preservation or just traffic, or yeah. just having like a functioning city, uh, you've also written about the real threat of cultural erasure. Yeah. Um, what do you mean by that? Cultural erasure in the sense that that a lot of what makes Jeju unique is being destroyed for for a massive tourism development. Like, for instance, for instance, um, 
just Jeju's sediment styles of clustered clustered communities, and also a lot of a lot of the shamanic shrines are being destroyed for development. You're talking about the villages. Oh yes. Out out in the island. Yeah. I want to speak a little bit to uh, some of your uh, religious journey history, uh -huh. which seems kind of tied to Jeju, which yes. is pretty fascinating. And I'll start by asking you about your 2011 pilgrimage. Oh, yes. You did a seven-day, 143-kilometer uh, hike pilgrimage yeah. along the Ole Trails, uh, visiting eight Buddhist temples all around Jeju. Mm. Uh, this was in your talk program year? Yes. Yeah. So what inspired this pilgrimage? Well, ever since I came back to Jeju, I've always felt that I've had some sort of spiritual connection to this island. Well, you might have heard that so many times, and almost everybody everybody says us it's almost like a quote out of eat pray love or yeah but yeah that was as silly as that sound that was kind of my motivation the sort of spiritual spiritual sense of of being in jeju but you're you're an ordained buddhist priest yes i'm an ordained, ordained priest. The right yes okay. and you did that after talk year before talk year that was after my talk year that was um that was last year actually okay yeah you really felt drawn to buddhism do you have a buddhist background my family is Buddhist by tradition, but my parents aren't really religious, so we do it purely out of culture. Right. Yeah. So what attracted you to Korean uh, forms of Buddhism? Korean forms of Buddhism? I liked how, well, just just how resilient it has been. In the Korea, well, the story of Korea is also the story of Korean Buddhism. It's like, it's been through, well, can I swear on this? It's been through a shitload of of difficulty. You're talking about uh, during the uh, uh, during the era from 1400 to 1900. Oh yes, the Joseon Dynasty, when Buddhism was suppressed. So even even with official suppression in almost every way possible, Buddhism managed to survive in Korea and still remain a very integral part of Korean culture, and also still maintain a very strong degree of of intellectual intellectual dynamism that still persists to this day. What is the, uh, is it sect, or what is the form that you're part of? Most, uh, most people in the West will know it as Zen. In Korea, they call it Sun. Okay. And Zen Buddhism differs from other Buddhisms? How so? Well, doctrinally, at least, it's more focused on meditation. But in actuality, our practices vary from, from including very devotional practices and very ritual practices. But doctrinally, at least, we focus on meditation. So meditation, which speaks to... Concepts like mindfulness, right living, harmony with the world around you, uh, exploration of simplicity in yes. your life. Um, what does that mean to have uh, to uh, struggle to achieve simplicity in your life? Well, it's actually not so much of a struggle as it is just to enjoy what you have right now, to to really savor the moment, and not really try to intellectualize everything. Like like when you have a cup of tea, just have a cup of tea. It's this is the intellectual opposite of. FOMO, fear of missing out. Yes. <laughs> what is right living? What does that mean? Right living means to means to live without without being such a pest to everyone. So basically, don't be a jackass. Okay. Be kind. Yes, be kind. And even if you can't be kind, learn how to control yourself. Well, even in Buddhism, there's a right time to be an asshole, uh -huh. but you have to know when that right time to be an asshole is. Okay. What is mindfulness? Mindfulness is to be constantly aware of what your actions can lead to. So it's not it's not like you're constantly 
cautious about everything. It means it means just be aware that everything you do will have an impact in one way or another, no matter how small. And you can't really you can't really avoid that, but you just have to be aware that that you that you being in this world makes you a part of the world by default. There's no such thing as anything happening in and of, of itself. Everything's interconnected. And that's sort of a beautiful thing also. You wrote concerning Buddhism. Yes. Now during the Japanese occupation on Korea. You yeah. said, as, has, as had long been the case in Jeju's history, the need to survive mm -hmm. culturally trumped any sort of ideal, idealistic or mm -hmm. ideological fervor. Well, during colonial times, um, this is pretty much true for everybody, not just Buddhists. During the colonial times, if, if you so much as spoke out as the Japanese government, you'd find yourself in prison and executed. So most people, well just about everyone living in occupied Korea, had to work with the colonial government in some way or another. And they couldn't be so, so overt in their opposition to Japanese rule. There, there, were certainly, there were certainly armed opposition and other forms of resistance in Korea. But most people obviously realized that the Japanese had more guns. So people had to work their way around that, keeping what is important about themselves while avoiding the guns of the Japanese. Okay. And Buddhism persevered through these uh, stifling days. Yes. Uh, how? I mean, did, was it, did it really uh, become uh, linked up with Japanese Buddhism? In the beginning, uh, Japanese settlers did try to to join up with Korean Buddhism, but um, curiously, the Japanese colonial government didn't want any any strong any strong connection between Korean Buddhism and Japanese Buddhism. In part of the case is because once because Jap the different Japanese sects were also very much in competition with one another, so they soon realized that many of these Japanese orders were. <laughs> We're pretty much messing up the the plans for the colonial administration, and with everyone doing whatever they wanted, there is no easy way to control things. Uh -huh. So right from the beginning of the Japanese colonial administration, they they kept Korean Buddhism and Japanese Buddhism separate from one another. Okay. And another interesting thing is that Korean Buddhists took advantage of this situation. Awesome. They took advantage of the situation that they weren't actively persecuted as much as they were in the Joseon dynasty. They were still resisting the Japanese, but they also took advantage of the situation that that the Japanese allowed for some for some open space in which they could develop their own traditions. And at the same time they didn't need to worry too much about interference from the Japanese orders. Getting back to the pilgrimage that you undertook in 2011, uh, Seven days, 150 kilometers, that's, what, 30 kilometers a day? Yes. Uh, how was it? Was it grueling? Was it satisfying? Was it transcendent? What was the experience like? Oh, it was the most craziest thing I've ever done. Well, I was, how, how? I was, well, I was worried. I had the idea of, um, of wearing straw sandals on my journey <laughs> really? in, the, in the freezing winter because, <laughs> because it was sort of like a throwback to the 18th century. So that was absolute badness. <laughs> Like in the in the sense that it hurt your feet a lot. Oh yeah, my feet were absolutely blistered for whole months, oh. and that was the coldest winter in Jeju in eighteen years. <laughs> what month did you do that? It was January. It wasn't that bad that time, but it was still it was still crazy uh -huh. going through the freezing, frigid winds in Je in the Jeju winter, and Jeju is by no stretch of the imagination Hawaii. No. 
No. <laughs> I don't know why it's called the Hawaii of Korea, but it is not Hawaii at all. It seems like it's called the Hawaii of Korea because Korean honeymooners came here for 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> so a challenging pilgrimage. Um, you, you were inspired to do it uh, based on, I'm taking this from a Jeju Weekly article from 2011, yes. it's a 17th century poet, Basho. 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 Yes. Uh, his, po his poem, The Narrow Road, mm -hmm. and in it he talks about time poverty. Uh, what is time poverty? Time poverty is a sense that you always have, that you're always out of time, that you're always trying to, you're trying to save as much time as you can because your life is short. But another, but the curious thing about slow living and and going at your own pace is that that there's, there's there is none of the sense of of time poverty. That you don't have to save time. You can just live to live. You don't have to keep keep trying to push forward so you can do everything all at once. Because paradoxically, you can't live that way. Like, if you're trying to do everything at once, then you can't concentrate on your own self. You're always going to be pursuing something, and there's no end in sight. So, how did this notion of time poverty inspire or, or affect your pilgrimage effort? How did Basho's writing affect that? Well, it helped me, it helped me look at and pretty much how to live in a different way. I don't I don't have to rush all the time. I could just go at my own pace. I don't have I don't really have to complete everything all at once. It will come about so long as I'm at it. You did your pilgrimage around the island uh, more or less exclusively on the Ole trails. Yes. Right? So these were founded by whom? Sam Yongsu. And they were founded in part to counteract the notion of Bali Valley culture, yes. which in Korea is the hurry up, get it done yesterday kind of attitude. You said after your walk that the leadership of Jeju must realize that if they continue to take away from Jeju through overly ambitious development schemes, there won't be much of a Jeju left. Yes. Four years later, how have you seen this play out? Well, very clearly the Jeju government hasn't gotten the memo. <laughs> this, the changes I've seen in Jeju is absolutely insane. The first time I came to Jeju, there were, most of Aradong wasn't even there. Well, half of Shinjeju wasn't there either. So imagine my surprise coming back in 2010 to see Jeju three times bigger than I remembered it. It's changed that much in eight years? It's changed that much. So the changes have been that dramatic and they've been oh, that yes. big? Absolutely. Were you, so, and you've seen the plans in City Hall's uh, blueprint room. Yes. Where is it going? They set these goals um, for twenty for twenty forty. Well, they set goals every ten years, but but from the looks of it, they're it seems like they're trying to outdo themselves every every year they work on this. So there's more and more projects going up. There's no. There's um, more and more ridiculous slogans, more and more ridiculous projections on how things are going to be, as if Jeju is, is somehow unlimited in land area and unlimited in resources. So it's getting more and more crazy. But what I see nowadays on the ground is that there's a lot more awareness about, about how serious the problem has become, that there is real pushback from, from the citizens. When I first came here, people didn't care about development. It was, to them, it was a totally natural thing. But but nowadays, I see a lot more movements springing up, grassroots movements fighting against these things. Tony Tran is an American academic and ordained Buddhist priest studying uh, urban Jeju history mm -hmm. in Jeju City and around Jeju Island. Thanks for speaking with the Korea File.
ਗਏ ਵਾਕਨ That's the Korea file for this week. Thanks to Tommy Tran. You can find his writings re-examining the history of Jeju Island at jinmunhak.wordpress.com. That's J I N M U N H A K.wordpress.com. Please like the Korea file on Facebook. Leave us a comment on iTunes and tune in next week for a conversation with writer and journalist John Dunbar in which we'll talk about the rules of urban exploration in Korea, Seoul's punk rock scene and Korean cults. If you like this show, recommend it. from Jeju Island. I'm Andre Goulet. Oh.